You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky. This is WFHB Local News for Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel covers a bill that strips protections for Indiana wetlands. He speaks with an expert on rural land policy and an executive director of a local nature preserve to learn more about the effects this bill will have on Indiana and its wildlife. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from our public affairs program, KiteLine. But first, your local headlines. Monroe County Highway Director Lisa Ridge talked about an agreement to enforce condemnations at the August 18th Monroe County Redevelopment Commission meeting. Ridge presented an agreement with Yasmin Stump Law Group to help enforce potential condemnations while acquiring land for the Vernal Pike right-of-way project. She clarified that these situations rarely go to condemnation, but that the county wanted to be able to use the Yasmin Stump services if one did. It's a very lengthy process. It's very time-consuming. So we have found that um, it's better spent this way than tying up the county attorneys uh, due to the time constraints on if something does go to condemnation. So the services will only be used if we have to go to that extent uh, for the Vernal Pike right-of-way acquisition. Commissioner Iris Kiesling asked about a maximum amount for spending. Commissioner Christy Langley pointed out that the contract read, quote, not to exceed $50,000, end quote. Ridge said that amount could work, but that the nature of condemnations makes it hard to guess how much the process would cost. The reason being is because it's, um, we don't know, one, if there will be any parcels go to condemnation. Two, we don't know if the extent of how far that condemnation could go. Um, okay. Some of them will end up in you know, they could end up in a court or some condemnations end up in trial. We have not had any of that happen. So it's really hard to say what's the not to exceed because you don't know how far you will get with negotiations. Commissioners approved the agreement three to zero. The Bloomington Environmental Commission discussed the viability of hosting a panel later this year. At the August 19th meeting, city planner Ben Seraf talked about the difficulty in finding participants for the environmental panel. He said only two of the people that the city has reached out to have agreed to speak at the panel. Very few people have been um, willing to participate or have really gotten many responses um, for Eco Heroes. We, uh, so we, we've kind of gone to the overflow and just me, Linda, I and Andrew have just been kind of emailing um, as many people as possible. Uh, we currently still have only two uh, people participating in the panel discussion, and uh, we're kind of running out of time with that, but hopefully we can find people within the next week or so. Commissioner Andrew Gunther cautioned that the event may need to be canceled. 
He cited the Delta variant of COVID-19 as a huge reason for hesitancy. However, senior environmental planner Linda Thompson suggested commissioners iron out other information like panel length and continue to plan for the event as though it's going to happen. I personally would like to continue with our planning. Um, we've got, you know, a new list of people to contact, and um, but we have a, a lot of outstanding questions, uh, like the ones I sent this week via email, like um, how long should it last and what's the format? Because the people that we're reaching out to, we need to be able to tell them that rather than just saying, hey, you want to be in a panel discussion on Saturday? Um, so I'd like to talk about that tonight and move forward as if everything is still going to be going on. And then if we have to cancel at the last minute, uh, then that's what we'll do. Commissioner Dodima Whitney recommended the commission vote on whether to make the panel fully virtual as soon as possible. Commissioners voted to move the event fully virtual 10 to 0. Commissioner Gunther encouraged staff to reach back out to the speakers with the new format information. The new 4th Street parking garage opened for parking on Monday. The replacement garage provides parking for more than 500 vehicles with designated spots for electric vehicles. This will replace the old garage, which was built in 1985. The previous building was closed in 2018 after the city of Bloomington determined it was, quote, structurally unsound and unsafe. In March of 2020, the Bloomington Plan Commission approved the design for the 4th Street Garage. Construction then began in July of last year. According to a city press release, funding for the project came from Tax Increment Finance, or TIF, funds. Approval for funding came from the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission, who oversees TIF funds. The press release says that the source of these funds comes from the increase in property taxes generated on new development in that district. As for the artwork for the garage, the city used funds provided by the 1% for the Arts Ordinance, which says that at least 1% of the cost of construction for selected capital projects be used for public art. The 4th Street Garage and the new Trades District Garage are the first two in the state to receive a ParkSmart certification meant to reduce environmental impact, increase energy efficiency, and manage parking spaces efficiently. For more information on parking at the new garage, visit bloomington.in.gov transportation parking downtown. The city of Bloomington evicted a homeless encampment near the Beeline Bridge on Friday. According to a report in the Bloomingtonian, the city posted signs 72 hours before police arrived with social workers and a cleanup crew who cleared out tents and belongings. The notice said, quote, if you stay here overnight, please find safe shelter by Friday, August 20th, end quote. It also contained a list of local overnight shelters. In attendance were Bloomington Police Chief Mike Decoff and Director of Public Engagement Mary Catherine Carmichael, who oversaw the eviction. The move by the city follows a pattern of recent evictions of people experiencing homelessness. Over the winter, the city issued two evictions at Seminary Square Park. In March, the Bloomington City Council failed to pass an ordinance, which would have provided some protections for those experiencing homelessness. According to a comment from City Communications Director Yael Cassander, printed in the Herald Times, the most recent eviction came after business and property owners complained to the city officials about, quote, vandalism, theft, trespassing, and other crimes in the area of encampment, end quote.
As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, many local businesses and restaurants were forced to close their doors. For some, closure has been temporary, but for others, it has been permanent. Laughing Planet Cafe announced on August 12th that it will permanently close. On its Facebook page, the downtown Bloomington staple said, quote, we want to thank all of the team members, past and present, who have always made LP a great place to grab a healthy, tasty meal. We couldn't have done it without you. We also want to thank the Bloomington community for all their support over the last 20 years. You will be missed greatly, end quote. The Laughing Planet was known for its burritos, quesadillas, and its vegetarian and vegan options. Owner Bob Costello announced a temporary closure of his other restaurant, the Village Deli, through the remainder of the month of August in order to, quote, rest and reflect on its future. Costello also owns Soma Coffee House, which remains open. Up next, we turn to the producers of KiteLine for some recent prison-related news and announcements. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. The program is available online at wfhb.org and wherever you find your podcasts. Tomorrow, August 21st, is the launch of the Shut em Down campaign called by Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, a network of imprisoned organizers and mutual aid law practitioners. This is a statement on the demonstrations scheduled for August 21st and September 9th, historic days for Black struggle inside and against prison, written by Sundiata Jawanza and other JLS members who also work inside the National Lawyers Guild. Quote, in the spirit of abolition, let's shut them down. The Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, JLS, national membership are calling for national shut em down demonstrations to take place on August 21st and September 9th, 2021, the official days of organizing. To show solidarity, people are asked to demonstrate at jails, prisons, and ICE detention centers. Institutions of higher learning, which profit from prison labor, are another location where supporters can gather. The demonstrations are based on the JLS National Organizing Platform, which lists 10 demands. Simply put, we're calling for an end to the prison-industrial slave complex, both rife with human rights abuses and a modern-day extension of transatlantic slavery. For we are not beasts. For those who don't know, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak is a collective of imprisoned persons organizing for human rights. JLS's organizing national platform is the National Prison Strike's 10 demands that grew out of the National Prisoners' Strike of 2018. Both selected shut em down dates carry significant weight in the modern-day prisoners' movement and abolitionist circles. August 21, 2021 memorializes the historic assassination of George L. Jackson 50 years ago. September 9, 2021 marks the Attica Rebellion, also 50 years ago. The dates also recall the more modern-day historical National Prisoners' Work Strikes of 2016 and 2018. All of the above has helped shape the prisoners' movement as we know it today. Five decades later, human rights violations in U.S. prisons still persist. The attention of the public has been called away from a great national moral hypocrisy. This time of major political upheaval has distracted the people from domestic social issues related to abolition. Because distraction and division are the main instruments of empire, we must refuse to be distracted. We refuse to be distracted because our goal remains our collective liberation, to dismantle the prison-industrial slave complex. It is important to reaffirm our commitment to this principal objective. 
reaffirming our commitment and focus is necessary in order to catalyze the movement forward to continue pressing for progressive changes in a quickly changing society that wishes to forget its prison and police problems. This is why it's important not to allow this to be a year that we are only talking about the past struggles of people in prison, but a year to demonstrate, educate, network, and strengthen current state and national decarceration and abolitionist agendas. Unquote. The New York City Police Department, or NYPD, is the country's largest police force. It has an $11 billion budget, an arsenal of chemical weapons, tanks, sniper units, surveillance towers, and sound grenades. In addition to the money it receives from the city, the NYPD has another source of funding, the secretive New York City Police Foundation, which contributes money to the NYPD and is hidden from public scrutiny. The Police Foundation is a private organization funded by billion-dollar corporations that funnels private money under the table to the NYPD. A few of its donors include Citibank, Target, Bank of America, and the New York Giants. During the 2020 New York City budget negotiations, the City Council ordered the NYPD disclose all private contributions, but the department refused. Instead, it put the onus of releasing this information on the private donors, thereby removing the department from accountability and pushing it off to their donors, who have no commitment to telling the public the truth. Critics of the NYPD hold that the first step in ending the flow of private money to the NYPD is establishing transparency. They're demanding that foundation board members disclose the foundation's contributions to the NYPD. Critics contend that instead of supporting community-based public safety initiatives, the foundation has embraced expanding policing in ways that harm black and brown communities and avoid public oversight. The New York City Police Foundation isn't alone. There are more than 250 police foundations throughout the country receiving corporate cash that the public has no knowledge of. Palestinian Rafat Darawish is 33 days into a hunger strike protesting his detention in an Israeli prison under an administrative detention order. Administrative detention is a practice that has grown more common since the Second Intifada in 2000 and is used to hold Palestinian citizens in Israeli prisons without charges or trial. Darawish is a former political prisoner and his condition is reportedly deteriorating. As of last month, 540 Palestinians were held under administrative detention orders, including 225 children and 12 elected members of the Legislative Council, according to Ad-Damir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Critics contend that Israel's practice of administrative detention is in defiance of international humanitarian law. Now it's time for your feature reports. WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzaffel reports on Senate Bill 389, a bill that strips protections for Indiana wetlands. Weinzaffel speaks with Christopher Kraft, professor of rural land policy at Indiana University, and John Lawrence, executive director of Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve, to learn more about the effects this bill will have on Indiana and its wildlife.
The opposition was strong. Over 110 organizations and individuals signed and delivered a letter to the governor's office requesting a veto. The signers represented all parts of Indiana and multiple forms of environmental organizations. However, despite the unprecedented amount of opposition, on April 29th, Governor Eric Holcomb signed Senate Bill 389, which reduces the amount of wetlands in the state of Indiana. Meanwhile, in a quiet part of Monroe County, lies the peaceful wetlands of Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. Unaffected by the changes in the Senate Bill, the wetlands found here will continue to fulfill its environmental purpose for generations. However, Executive Director John Lawrence is a strong supporter of all wetlands and emphasizes the importance that wetlands have for the state of Indiana. Wetlands are just incredibly important uh, reservoirs of biodiversity, and they also provide really important uh, ecosystem functions. Flood control is a big one. They, they act like uh, kind of like a big sponge. Uh, you know, soak hold soaks up. They soak up water, hold back water. Help they help negate flooding. Uh, they also reduce uh, pollution uh, in in waterways by collecting uh, uh, pollutants, uh, which can you know include uh, excess nutrients. Wetlands help uh, retain those nutrients locally so they don't go downstream. Uh, they're also just really important habitat for plants and wildlife. The example are Bean Blossom Bombs Nature Preserve. You have uh, recorded over a dozen uh, species of, that are endangered or of conservation concern there including the Indiana bat, which is uh, federally endangered, uh, Kirtland snake, which is a cute little snake that uses crawfish burrows, uh, it's state endangered, and, and, and several other things. So, And a lot of these uh, plants and animals uh, rely on the wetland habitat. They're not found anywhere else. If the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve is protected, then what exactly will the controversial bill the governor signed do? The bill deals with the wetlands of Indiana that are protected by state laws. Of the wetlands in Indiana, 80 to 90% are not protected by the federal government, but have been protected at the state level. Under state protection, there are three classes of wetlands. The bill removes Class 1 wetlands from state protection and also reduces the amount of Class 2 wetlands while leaving Class Three wetlands intact. The differences between the three classes were explained to me by Christopher Kraft, a professor of rural land policy at Indiana University, Bloomington. So again, this is back to the state of Indiana, that isolated wetlands bill. They say it's a Class One, the lowest quality if there's been you know, hydrologic alteration, like it's been ditched or drained or filled, or it has more than 50% invasive species. So if it meets one or both of those criteria, they say it's a class one. And under the old bill, a lot of these wetlands were protected. Um, if they were larger than a half an acre, they would be protected. You know, Senate Bill 389 has said we're doing away with class one. We're, we're not going to, these are not wetlands under this bill. And if you have class one isolated wetlands on your property, then you can do what you want with them. Well, let's go to class three wetlands. They're the highest quality. 
these are ones that um and I think under the existing three eighty nine bill these aren't being affected. Um they're they were protected before and they're protected now. They they're high quality or they have high species richness or they have rare endangered species. There aren't that many of those. You know, there's a lot more class one levels. And then class two are kind of in the middle. They're not, you know, severely altered or dominated by invasive species, but they're not these super high quality sites. And Senate Bill 389 affected class two wetlands by saying that, um, it used to be that I think if it was more than a quarter acre in size, it would be protected. And I think under Senate Bill 389, it had said, nah, it's, it's got to be bigger. If it's more than three eighths of an, an acre, we'll protect it. But if it's less than that, we're not going to, it's not going to be protected. According to the National Water Summary Wetlands Resources Report, wetlands cover over 813,000 acres of Indiana, and 80% of the state's remaining wetlands fall under the categories of Class 1 and Class 2 and are now susceptible to being drained. With this information in mind and knowing the importance of wetlands, Professor Kraft explained who benefits from the passing of this bill and who benefits from the change to the permits needed to remove wetlands. Well, I think um, for people who advocate growth and um, that sort of economic growth, I think that this is an argument that they would like because it's, you know, some of this land is off the table to development or if you do want to develop it, you're going to have to go through the permitting process and that can be pretty lengthy and pretty rigorous. I've worked with some landowners who've kind of gotten caught up in, in that. Um, you know, that's people I think who stand to benefit. You know, on the other hand, Indiana is not known for having you know, the abundant natural resources some states like, say, Michigan have. And so when you take some of these protections away, um, you take away some of the limited natural resources that are still present in the state. For many farmers and land developers, the permitting process for removing wetlands is quite difficult. And the bill relaxes this process and makes it easier for Class 1 and some Class 2 wetlands to be removed. While this allows development to be easier at the moment, it does not account for the effects that the lack of wetlands could have on the future. Opponents of the bill, including the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, have argued that the bill leaves Indiana ill-prepared to face the floods that will follow the increases in rainfall expected in future years, as well as limit essential earth processes such as water filtration, water storage, and groundwater replenishment. Despite the passing of this bill, there's still great work being done to protect the wetlands of Indiana and restore old wetlands throughout the state. Mr. Lawrence described what effect the bill will have on the goals of the Bean Blossom Nature Reserve and its organizing body, the Sycamore Land Trust. It certainly just means that uh, efforts by uh, conservation groups like Sycamore, the Nature Conservancy, our, our other local land trusts, uh, throughout the state to do what we can to uh, acquire wetlands and areas that can be restored to wetlands and then put in the large commitment of, of time and effort to, number one, do any restoration work that's needed, and then, of course, to uh, monitor, and maintain, and, and protect that area in perpetuity. 
that work just becomes all the more important when there are less efforts on the regulatory side to to protect wetlands. Lawrence says for those interested in helping conservation groups who are stepping up to the plate to protect Indiana wetlands, the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve always welcomes volunteers. There are a lot of ways you can support our work. Uh, most basic, of course, is be a donor. We have memberships starting at uh, $40 a year. Uh, it all goes into uh, making our work possible of uh, not only acquiring more land, but also protecting and, and uh, maintaining the land that is already in our care. We also have volunteer events. Um, best way people can get involved with that is uh, sign up for our e-newsletter. Uh, you can go to our website, sycamorelandtrust.org. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapple. You've been listening to WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Jake Jacobson in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Nathaniel Weinsapple. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Hareski-Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you find your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer 